Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Nothing is Real, a Beatles podcast, is powered by Acast. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. My name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. And today we've got uh, another Nothing Is Real guest joining us in the Beatles pod, uh, the one and only Mr. Kevin Godley. Hello, Kevin. Hello, how are you doing? We're doing very well. Now, listeners, on the very slim chance you're unaware of the body of work of our guest today, Kevin Godley has been weaving his way in and out of all the best parts of popular culture for over 50 years. Whether it's as a quarter of 10cc or half of Godley and Cream, he's also been the man behind some iconic music videos for U2, Duran Duran, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, as well as up-and-comers George Harrison, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, and together as The Beatles. Amazingly, it has taken until 2020 for Kevin to release his debut solo album, Muscle Memory, which comes out in December. And currently he's uh, putting out a new track from that every fortnight, wherever you stream your music. So 2020 hasn't been all bad if we're getting a new Kevin Godley album. And uh, perhaps most importantly, Kevin is a drummer and we love drummers because they're just the best people. Yeah, there are so many drummer jokes that have the opposite <laughs> opinion. <laughs> Um, so listen, thanks for joining us, uh, Kevin. Whenever we meet somebody new, we're always interested in, you know, their first exposure to the Beatles. And, and you were born probably at exactly the right time to experience them, I'm guessing, near the start. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. I mean, it affected everybody that I hung out with in Manchester, all the teenagers. And it's, it's really difficult to pin down exactly why. Because pop music, excuse me, I'm going to have a sweet water while we talk. Uh, pop music, per se, had been around for a long time already. It, it was something, I have a theory about them. And there were two main tribes, if you like, in those years. There was the, the Greasers, and the Teddy Boys, and there was the more aesthetic strain of the, the B generation coming out of the USA. Um, and somehow the Beatles managed to sound like Greasers and Teds, but look like the Beat Generation. Uh, they combined without even knowing it. I don't think it was that obvious to them, but and it was probably because they were in Hamburg and away from the basic commercial centres of pop music. But they combined something that seemed to relate to everybody at the right time. 
um, with the sound that related to everybody at the right time and the way they looked related to everybody at that time. It was, it was just one of those extraordinary moments, a little bubble in the 60s. Oh, was that uh, obvious to you at the time? Like, because uh, you were, like, when, when, when you saw them for the first time, did that uh, kind of confluence seem, oh, my God, they've cracked a code kind of thing? No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, it's not that only sort of, I only realised that a few years ago. Um, yes. I think it was the fact that that um, we were we were pretty young, but we were just starting to go to art college at the time. And the atmosphere at art college in the UK in the early sixties was very open and very welcoming to anything new and different. And they just sounded right. You know, the the, the magic thing about music, regardless of what they looked like, is the good music. Uh, that lasts, hits a spot. It actually touches something in you, and you never really know why. It just does. And I think people were ready for something different. There are cycles in pop music. Um, the, the sort of 50s, early 60s pop star thing had kind of come to it at the end of its cycle, and there was something very honest about the Beatles. They didn't have stage names, you know. They, they looked different. They played instruments that looked different. Um, and that's all probably because their learning curve visually was probably rooted in their years in Hamburg, you know, as opposed to in London or in, or, you know, in this country. Um, so I don't think they, they were quite aware of all those things, that confluence of events that took place to, to incubate the Beatles. It just was who they were. But it actually hit so many things at the same time for my generation. And at, when they started, you, if, if I have the timeline right, you were already in a band or, you know, getting interested in music and playing yeah, music. Kind of. Yeah, but we kind of played anything. Yeah. <laughs> we played any old shit. Uh, and it was, uh, it was, it was about the same time. And they were just, they were just beginning to peak, I think, yeah. uh, when we were at art college. And I was, I was going around in the back of a Thames van with a bunch of other guys <laughs> playing gigs all around England. Uh, and and was, there a, was there kind of a, a momentous first listening or was it something that just sort of gradually crept into your well, artistic the, realm? <laughs> the thing I do remember, and it wasn't really just about me, um, it was, I think I'd come home uh, for the weekend and I was heading back to, to college and I got back to college and I think Sergeant Pepper had just come out. And the college seemed to have stopped. And everything that anyone was doing in the sculpture room, in the, in, in the live, in the live class, in the, in the printing room, in photography, in graphic design, no one was working. They were all pouring over the album cover and playing the track. Everybody. Yeah. So wherever you went in the college building uh, was a mishmash of Sergeant Pepper. It sounded like number nine. <laughs> <laughs> All playing at the same time and everybody was reading the lyrics. It was such an artistic event. Yes. And I'll never forget that. It was everything, everything paused just to experience this record. I think, I think particularly with Pepper, it's something myself and Stephen have talked about before. I think that 
people uh, maybe take Sgt. Pepper for granted these days. It seems that Abbey Road and the White Album get all the love and that Sgt. Pepper is seen as this kind of, uh, you know, a slightly separate thing. Um, but to my mind, to be there at that time makes a significant amount of difference to how you experience an album like Pepper. It, it was. I mean, like a lot of magic albums, it, the effect of it wasn't instantaneous and the understanding of it wasn't instantaneous. You just knew when you heard it that you were experiencing something, experiencing something revolutionary. Hmm. And it made the hair stand up on your back, back of your neck and you didn't quite know why. And it took a good few listens to find the elements that were familiar to you. Uh, but it, it, it was... I'm trying to imagine what it was like for them making it <laughs> um, and whether they knew that it was as re revolutionary as, as it actually was. Um, well, they, were, they were certainly never um, not cocky in a nice way. I mean, they knew they were good. <laughs> You know? Oh, I know. I mean, you know, I've seen an interview with Paul where he was talking about writing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Oh, no, uh, A Day in the Life, and that line, I'd love to turn you on. Yeah. Where he and John looked at each other and knowingly <laughs> what they were actually saying, but they put it in anyway. Um, I don't know. They, they, they discovered a way of working where the recording studio became the fifth, fifth member of the band, mm. if you look. And they discovered that you could paint with sound. So they did, because no one told them they could. <laughs> and although you were in art college, you also had, you know, you, you were in the Mockingbirds for that period yeah. of time. And, you know, did you think, okay, this is my in to, to, to live the Beatle life or, you know, did you get any experience or were you down in London at all rubbing shoulders with the periphery of the scene or any of that kind of stuff? No, because we were in Manchester. We were, we were a Manchester, local Manchester band. Yeah. And we were kind of a, I don't know, a slightly high-end R&B band or anything else. I was, I had no idea if it would lead anywhere. We hoped it would and we were kind of surprised that it didn't because we recorded most of the songs that Graham Goulman wrote, but we never had a hit with any of them. It was people like the Yardbirds that had the hits. So poor old Mockingbirds didn't actually go anywhere, but it was great experience, obviously. It was just good fun. and It was, uh, it was about sitting at the back enjoying playing more than anything else. And were you, were you on a circuit with other bands at the time? You know, I'm thinking the Hollies or the Paramounts or that. that was there a circuit that you were playing? I guess there kind of was. And there was, there was maybe, maybe half a dozen clubs around the UK mm. that one would keep going back to. Some of them were really seedy shitholes. Um, and you didn't really look forward to going there at all because they could get pretty violent. I think there was one club we used to play and if you didn't play the songs they wanted to hear, they'd throw stuff at you. <laughs> some of them would get really drunk and demand coming on stage and singing. You know, it was, it was, it was really hairy. Um, but some clubs were a little bit more sedate and some of the clubs were normal. But, but it, were, it was mostly a club circuit. There was no really, for bands like us, a, a concert. No. And we eventually took a little step up in Manchester and play places like uh, the Free Trade Hall, places like that eventually. 
but it was clubs really, little, little tiny stages. And at that at that stage, were you uh, in a position of acting as a support band for for other acts? You know, for in yeah. the way the, the Beatles had supported you know American artists and things like that. Yes, there was a, probably one of the most popular clubs in Manchester. There was a place called the Oasis, and they had two stages. They had an A stage and a B stage. Uh, and the B stage was our sort of natural habitat. I don't think we ever played the A stage. <laughs> and it was about the size of my computer screen <laughs> stage. Uh, and the toilet was about the size of an iPad. Um, so, as was the dressing room. So it was pretty grubby and pretty grimy and pretty dirty, but and sweaty. But what the fuck? We were kids and we loved it. Yeah. And did the Liverpool thing of the Beatles have any particular resonance being from Manchester yourselves? That, you know, it always seemed that it, it, they kind of broke a, a kind of London-centric mould, even though they all went to London pretty early themselves. They kind of. I think what it did was it, it gave us confidence that, you know, you don't have to be in the centre of everything to make an impact. Um, and I suppose the, the obvious conclusion of that was was a setting a Barrett studio there. I don't think without the awareness of of doing, of, of the Beatles coming from Liverpool and being successful at Liverpool, I don't think we'd have, we'd have got to that same place. Mm. Um, but you know, we were you know we were kids. We were, we were, we were in our early twenties or teens and just having a great time. There wasn't a lot of analysis going on. <laughs> well, this is the thing, isn't it? Like everybody looks back and they kind of look at the sixties as if everybody in the sixties was saying, "Oh, isn't it great? We're in the sixties. It was just what was obviously happening at the time. Yeah. But it, it's more remarkable in retrospect to some degree, I guess. Well, there were so many places to play, mm. and that's what is different. Um, in, I don't know, Manchester alone, there must have been about six or seven places that bands could play with stages of one sort or another. And there must have been about 10 cinemas in Manchester. So, you know, you were never short of something to do when you went out in Manchester in the evening, that's for sure. It was a, it was playtime. Yeah, yeah. And... Something that's interesting because you know you you, you wrote a great uh, I think it's a memoir more so than an autobiography called Space Cake uh, yeah. a few years ago, and what's interesting is you know you, you describe your childhood and you know it, it's not obvious I think to you maybe growing up exactly where you're going to what you're going to do in life. I knew what I didn't want to do. <laughs> yes, um, but in some ways you kind of look at the slipstream of everything the Beatles did and your options as a young person between 1960 and 1970 has kind of been changed because of kind of the, the road that they broke through during those years. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah. I mean, I always look at it as, I mean, when we all started listening to pop music, rock music, we were kind of listening to it on stations like Radio Luxembourg, um, which were crackly, and, you know, really bad reception. You had to search around the dial to find them. And it was mostly stuff coming out of America, but it was calling to us in one way or another. And people like Elvis and people that were popular in the 50s and very early 60s, they kind of opened the door a little bit. 
But when the Beatles came along and that whole generation that followed, they booted the thing off its hinges. Mm. You know, and that, that was exciting because suddenly it meant that pop music isn't this particular uh, firmly designed and boxed-in thing. You don't have to play by these rules anymore. Yeah. Because someone has been hugely successful, a group has been hugely successful by doing the exact opposite. So there are no rules anymore. And for a couple of art students, that was that was kind of what we were taught anyway. Yes, yes. So we kind of jumped in head first. And in 1968, I think you leave art school and you, yeah. you paid a visit to Apple in, a, in, the, in the initial months afterwards. Is that right? Yeah, yeah we, we, we did. What do you remember from that? Was that a... Oh, the, <laughs> the smell of dope. Okay. Of hash permeated the entire building. And sitting in a waiting room with, I think it was Twiggy on one side, and someone like Igor Stravinsky and Sophie with it. It was like, what the fuck is going <laughs> on here? It was, it was like a it was like a psychedelic experience and everyone's, you know, smoking spliffs and we were these little, you know, Manchester <laughs> We eventually met somebody, uh, uh, Tony Bram Tony Bramwell was the name. Oh, yeah. I forget exactly why we were there. I think we were trying to sell a bizarre multimedia musical or something. And, um, yeah, it was an interesting few hours, and then we left. We were stoned, but we didn't know it. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but nothing really ever came of that. I mean, that's how Apple was. I was going to say, is that was that was that in response to just the fact that Apple was putting adverts in the press saying, if you have talent, if you have a yeah. project. Yeah, show up. Yeah, and, and you, you literally could just show up and, and make a pitch yeah. and, yeah. Yeah, there was no, you know, Tony got a window at three o'clock on Friday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, just, you just rolled up and, you know, sat in the waiting room. And people just passed by that were legends, you know. Um, and then you got to see someone who was probably more stunned than the people in the waiting room. And you said your piece and you left your bag of stuff with them. And uh, I don't think we ever heard from anyone again. <laughs> <laughs> I think they closed shortly after that. Yeah, I think not, that seems to be par for the course that you turn up, make your pitch, and yeah, that's it. That's it. It was very but, idealistic, I have to say. You know, it's, yeah. it was like, there's no business I can. It's a pity, really, because it's there, there's a lot of Apple was a good idea, badly executed. If you if you think about well, the multimedia landscape, of it missing, like how to make this idealistic idea actually function as a business that didn't exist. But we were kind of there at that sort of tipping point when it was about to cease to exist. <laughs> um, and so uh, you eventually yourself you kind of move towards a you know a. A musical existence, uh, you know, you, you yeah. record some singles and you drift towards uh, working in-house in Strawberry Studios. Uh, Apologise, it's raining. I have just had the same uh, rain <laughs> lash the windows here. I'm not sure if it's being picked up. <laughs> um, but I, I guess, where was your mind at at the end of the 60s in terms of, you know, because you were doing lots of different things and were you specifically trying to, 
you were doing painting, you were doing music, you were playing, you were recording. Uh, was it just that kind of art school freedom of I'm going to do all these things? Or at, at which point did the, you know, did, did it seems you kind of lock in more on, on the musical side of things? Oof. That's a big question. <laughs> Maybe okay. that hasn't settled yet. <laughs> yeah, to a degree. I mean, I remember when we actually left college, the day we left college, we uh, we drove down to London to a recording session. Yeah. Um, and um, it was for a label called Marmalade by Giorgio Gamelsky. And we recorded one song as the horrifically named duo Frab Joy and the Runcible Spoon. Mm. Jesus. It was, uh, the, it, it was the 60s. It was the it 60s. It was the 60s. <laughs> you can time. timestamp that, yes. Yeah. I mean, the name was almost as long as the 60s. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we did that. And that was, that was really exciting. Yeah. To be in a proper recording studio with a proper producer and proper musicians. Uh, but then again, marmalade went bust. There's a pattern emerging here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> First we go to Apple and they go bust. Then we go to marmalade and they go bust. <laughs> I think maybe we jinxed people. But we didn't, we didn't really know who or what we wanted to be because I think by then we were aware that we didn't want to, we didn't want to pin ourselves down. I think we sensed that we could do a few different things. So why not try them all? Mm. The first professional job, professional, I use the word advisedly, um, we did a mural for our manager. Uh, that was our first professional commission. <laughs> but I, I remember probably the most interesting thing that we did. We, we were asked to do a cutout book of an 11th hussar for Pan Books, I think it was. It was about so big. It was, it was about two foot square. And the idea was you cut out these shapes, which, which we painted, and you slot them together, and you get a three-foot-high cardboard <laughs> statue of an 11th hussar. I think it was to promote the film Charge of the Light Brigade. No? Okay. And that was great fun. And that kept us up most nights. And probably, I think we were doing that and watching television live uh, for the moon landing. Wow. Which was, uh, which was extraordinary. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, we, we, we were, we did that and we did lots of, we, we, but the music kept drawing us back in. And was, was, did I, was, was there a sort of a, a, an underlying confidence at that time, a sort of certainty that you knew no. music, you know, you were going to get there in the end, you, something was going to come or were you just, we were, we were, you know, we were punting like everybody else. I think yeah. and a lot of people doing what we were doing. Um, but I don't know. I think you get a feel when you've written something, you get a feeling from it. Mm. And the feeling we were getting was, you know, this, this is actually not bad. And there's probably a lot of hurdles between now and any form of success. Um, but we've, we've got something. And, you know, we were quite lucky. I mean, Graham used to record our initial warblings on his Revox tape recorder at home. He kind of let us demo things and try things. So we were, we were gradually, very gradually becoming a sort of very small commodity hmm. in Manchester, you know, 
small fish in a small pond, but fish nevertheless. Um, and we just we just kept slogging on, you know, for the hell of it. Um, and it but it wasn't really until the end of the sixties that we made any real impact. Mm. Well, when you kind of look at uh, you know the hot legs period, so yeah. you know. Yeah. There's a track on that Hot Legs album, uh, Sweet F.A., which is kind of beatly in terms of execution. Well, it's like Abbey Road. Yes. It's like the end of Abbey Road, and that, I suppose that was the inspiration. Yes. I, I suppose when you're kind of... It, it, it's an interesting thing that we've talked about before, myself and Stephen, which is that there's two ways you can kind of be inspired by the Beatles. You can either try and go down a route to you know make something that sounds like a, a Beatles record but the the flip side of that is you know also trying to harness the the kind of the imagination or the, the freedom aspect of what they did and the honesty of what they did uh it's it's a heavy it, it's it's what's odd to me 50 years after later is just how much the Beatles stuff still can resonate depending on how the wind is blowing you know yeah <laughs> I mean one thing I've noticed, uh, again, looking back, excuse me, I'm pouring a drink again, is that when you, when you do start to, when you do make music and you're young, you, you can't help but, in a, in a way, uh, copy to a degree some of your favourite artists because they are your reference points. Yeah, absolutely. As to what you think of music is. So... When you start to write song, it, it's only natural that you pull in some of these influences. And that's a very good example, Sweet F.A. You know, that was very Abbey Roadish, and we thought, wow, it sounds like the Beatles must be good. But gradually, over the intervening years, it's become obvious to me that when you actually stop thinking about it and you just do it, that gradually goes away. And you, you find that you find your own voice mm. eventually without even knowing it sometimes. Um, and that's really exciting. You, in other words, you don't really have to think all the time. <laughs> you don't have to think, well, that one doesn't sound like John singing. Uh, let me have another crack at that take. Yeah. Um, that just disappears because it's not really what you're after. You're really trying to find your own musical identity. And you're using what you know and what you've already heard as a kind of stepping stone. Yeah. To somewhere. It's just that you don't know where the somewhere is. Yeah. Well, you, you could argue even the Beatles went through a phase of that themselves, doing their Buddy oh, Holly songs you. and their rock and roll songs. It happens to yeah, to, to, right. to everyone. Um, I, I always find the, the Strawberry Studios part of your experience, you know, the pre-10CC period, quite amazing. I, I, I love the notion of a house band and this kind of hit factory notion. And I think when, you know, we were talking about Apple a few minutes ago, Apple set up a studio and was supposed to make hit records and that fell apart. And I, I think Strawberry Studios is what Apple Studios should have been. You know, it was a, it seems to be like a crack squad of, you know, really hardworking, super talented people. Is that a... Yeah. A but it was, I, I, I also think it worked because there, there wasn't a professional recording studio in Manchester until Strawberry came along. Mm. There was lots of wee demo studios. Um, and it was quite a leap of faith to build it. Um, and the first wave of people that we ended up producing were really bizarre <laughs> comedians and and people's girlfriends and 
football teams. And <laughs> I was like, what the fuck are we doing? For <laughs> um, and sort of local orchestras and bands and stuff. Um, but that's kind of what was going on in Manchester. Manchester wasn't perceived at that time as being a place where you went to make records. And it took quite a number of years for that perception to change. And I think we helped make that happen. Yeah. But, you know, looking back again, it was those were great years because our influences were formed. You know, you know, sort of recording comedians. I mean, where the fuck is that going to go? <laughs> but you learn something for from every every session you do. Probably the first professional musical sessions that we did. Graham, I don't know if you remember Graham was in New York in the early mm. days of Strawberry, writing for a bunch of guys called Cousinet's Cats, churning out pop music. Um, and they wanted to record a bunch of tracks um, and give them different names, all made by the same bunch of studio people. <laughs> so Graham suggested, well, okay, I've got a, a share in this studio in London, in, in sorry, in Manchester, why don't we do it there? We can give you guys good rates. And I went from it. So we, we, we spent a good few months in there recording these tracks um, for people like the Crazy Elephant and God knows what other names, but they were all us. Yeah. But and it's so, like you're Hamburg in a way, that, those years. Yeah. We learned our chops being other people. Yeah. And recording a strange bunch of characters. So it was... <laughs> It was like Broadway Danny Rose. It was <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting way to sort of, I, I know you've been in the business for years, but, but most people are coming at it from the point of view, they're touring, they're playing live, then they come into a studio, whereas really you, you're almost doing it in reverse. You're in the studio, you're learning the studio craft, you're working with other people. Yeah. Yeah. And then that leads on to the decision to, you know, to, to form the band. So it's very few bands sort of, do it that way. That's that's very true. Uh, yeah, it was just how it happened, and it all because of strawberry. Mm. Really, we we had this incubator where we could, where we just went and made music one way or another. And it okay. wasn't till a few years, a few years into that process that you know a light bulb went off. I was going to say, what, what, I, I, yeah, I was going to say, was there a point at which? it could have stayed that way, that, that it could just have become the sort of premier venue, the premier recording studio, and the band wouldn't have emerged? That, 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 or was there always that still ambition in the back of your mind? Oh, I, I think it would have. It may have been a bit, it may have happened a little bit later or in a different way. But um, the person who actually suggested it in a very off-the-cuff way was Neil Sadaka. We, we recorded... Um, again, we were the house band and producers for two albums for him. And at some point during the second album, he said, you guys are really good. You play really well. Uh, why don't you become a band? And it was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> don't forget, prior to that, a good few years, there was Hot Legs, which was yeah. a very short-lived band. But it was like, you know, and I think that was because... Our main function on both those albums were as a house band as opposed to producers. It was a very simple 
rhythm section led lineup of musicians. So we were playing a lot and playing together a lot. And that that kind of cemented it really. The fact that we could, as opposed to relying on recording techniques, we could actually play well together. And uh, you know, it's silly really when you when you think of it, but just him saying that, just, you know, a bell went off. Mm, yeah. So we did. And we uh, again Apple came into the equation. The first thing we recorded was a track called Waterfall, Memory Serves, which wasn't brilliant. It was kind of like a Crosby, Still and Nash thing, and we sent it to Apple, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what was left of Apple at the time, and uh, they turned it down. So we knew we were on the right lines. <laughs> so that, so that, that, that would have been 1972, that sort Something of thing? Something like that, yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm interested that you were persisting with Apple. You know, but, but like by 72, Apple was in pieces. Yeah, it was. It was. But but there's uh, Beatle magic, though, in Apple, no, you know? No, exactly. Uh, <laughs> it's... Uh, uh, well, I guess what happens in the aftermath of that, you know, the rest is history that, you know, you, you kind of cross the Rubicon into becoming, you know, you're making hits, you're on top of the pops uh, and you kind of, it, it, I, it, did you find that, you know, because of your professional experience recording that, you know, getting behind the screen of fame, it, it wasn't that exciting or, uh, you know, was it everything that you hoped it would be or was it, did you have kind of a, a slightly askew vision of, of what was happening? No, it was, it was pretty exciting. <laughs> I'd imagine. I remember, just jumping back a few years, I remember distinctly a moment, and this was about Neanderthal Man being mm. hot lids. We made the record and we put it out, you know, like many other things that we'd done. And, I, and I'd gone on to, um, I don't know whether I was with Law or not, but we were at some outdoor festival. Um, and... We woke up in the morning and everyone had their radios on, you know, all the different tents had their radios on. And I had something to go, I was really familiar. What the fuck is that? And it was now the full man. And it was being played on, you know, hundreds of radios on the site. And, you know, A, it's nice to hear something of your own actually on the radio, but actually hearing it on that many radios at the same time is is truly something else um so that yeah that's it's exciting there's no way of getting away from it yeah first hits are always exciting and hits are exciting with and all the hoo-ha that goes with them yeah um you do get a bit blasé about it afterwards you know a little bit down the line but it is it still is it, it always will be an exciting thing because it means a lot of people like what you do mm. there's nothing wrong with that you know so it's yeah it's it's amazing and it always will be and and when it happened i mean it really happened and it happened fast and and you know you you were churning out the hits well yes and no it happened and as most of these things tend to happen they're not kind of calculated. They're virtually accidents hmm. of timing and, and, and whatnot. And, and our first hit as 10 CC was, uh, was a, a track called Donna. That I yep. think it went to number two. But that was a B-side. That was the B-side of the song that we'd sent to Apple. Um, and we wrote it in half an hour. 
and, and recorded it just to fill that slot, you know. But during the recording of it, it became obvious that this is more interesting than the A side. And it was a hit. Yeah. And, you know, the template was starting to be built. And then, you know, we had to record an album. We gave ourselves, we had to do it quickly because things were, things moved fast in those days. Mm. And I think we had about three to four weeks to write and record an album, you know. Uh, this may or may not have been, you have to forgive my timeline, but it may not have been, or it may have been after we had Rubber Bullets as a hit as well. There was one in between that wasn't a hit mm-hmm. called Johnny Don't Do It because we were trying to build on the success of Donna. So we did another sort of doo-wop pastiche that didn't work. So we thought, oh, fuck it, let's just do what we like. Um, but as I said, we had about three weeks to record an album, and that harks back to what I was saying earlier. There wasn't time to consider everything. Mm. To think, well, that doesn't sound like it's, you know, like what we really like. There was only time to write stuff and, and record it and see what happened. So the brain was disengaged, um, but everything else was functioning. Uh, it was all about feel and instinct and intuition, that first album. Yeah. And it, it was something that was different to what was going on because of that. You kind of have to work hard to get to a place of automatic creation in a way. You know, it's, uh, I, th- I think uh, Hemingway said about going bankrupt. It happened slowly and then all of a sudden, you know. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm assuming fame is like that and some of the best ways of working can be like that as well. Yeah, the thing is never to, you know, never to take it for granted mm. and or never to... Uh, now to get to a place where you begin to believe that you found the perfect key mm. to who you are and what you are. Um, <laughs> a napkin on my because I was eating before you came up. <laughs> uh, never, always trust the process, but never assume that the most recent process is the one you're going to stick with forever. Yeah. One of the interesting things that happens in that kind of run between 72 to 76 is uh, you overlap with Paul McCartney and he's in Strawberry making the fantastic McGear album. Me and Stephen love the McGear album. We think it's one of of these little gems. Um, Was that your first direct interaction with a Beatle or had you crossed paths at any other point? No, not I can recall. Uh, Uh, Yeah. People are very strange about meeting McCartney where they... It seems it's you, you. You know, you want to be normal, but you can't be normal. Or uh, you know, how did it land with you? <laughs> well, you know, you, you you're seeing album covers. You're not meeting anyone. You're seeing an album covers. Yeah. But he was lovely. You know, he's 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 a lovely guy. Yeah. So and was, uh, we were in an, an, a working environment, and how it worked was we'd work up to about sort of seven or eight o'clock in the evening, and then. Um, he and Mike would come in and take over the night shift. So there was a, there was a point of crossover where we played each other stuff, you know, which was kind of cool. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's, when, when you meet someone you admire, you always do feel a bit, ooh. But he was, he was very, he makes you feel comfortable, you know. Yeah, that's, that's what a lot of people say, yeah. And I suppose, as you say, it, you know, it, 
Yeah, he. But I suppose, as you say, he was he was on your territory. You know, he was. It was a work environment, and by that stage, you were in one of you were in one of the biggest bands in the UK at that time yourself. Yeah. So, gosh, so I wouldn't say exactly so we were equals. No, but <laughs> we but, were, but but you were you were you were established, and you had that. Yes. Yeah, yes. that 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 position. So. Yeah. Uh, that's right, and we, you know, we obviously both appreciated each other's work very, very much, which was great. Mm. And did you, you didn't, you say you were sort of playing each other's things, but you, there was no, he didn't pick up a guitar and play, or didn't ask you to come and play. No, I, you know, I can't remember how their sessions actually worked. I'm probably wrong, or I may be wrong. I'm not sure whether they'd already written stuff and they were just recording it. Yeah. But they had a pretty tight schedule, I think. So, you know, there was maybe an hour when we when we got to play a couple. You know, he plays a couple of things on 24 track that they were recording, and we do the same. Mm. We didn't actually play. Sure. <laughs> it was just it was just sharing bits of tapes and snatches of things that we were both working on at the time. Well, as Jason uh, said, both both he and I are very fond of that McGear album, I think. But I think it's almost like a lost McCartney album. And it it, it, it yeah. sound, I don't know. I don't know if you've heard the, the reissue of that, and there's a remaster, but it sounds fantastic. I mean, it's a it's a great advert for Strawberry Studios. You know, it sounds amazing. Yeah. It had a good sound. It was a good vibe. It was in the walls. That's the stuff you can't plan. Um, I suppose yeah. we progressed through the the seventies. You know, uh, you know, uh, there's. The kind of the, the the cleaving of 10cc and godly and cream is something i know you've talked about a lot in interviews and documentaries and all the rest i, I guess to look at it a different way with the benefit of hindsight uh, do you have any insight into when the almost when the beatles split up i kind of feel that the beatles were at the vanguard of so many things and they were probably the first band to split up that people split were kind of up. curious about the, the afterlife and uh, the older I get, when I was a kid, I was like, why do they have to split up? The older I get, the more I, I realize, listen, families don't talk to each other. People go away. People fall apart. I'm much more forgiving about these things. But yeah, do, is there I'm anything good. of the, the psychology of that that you can give us as someone who is in a famous group? Only, only, to, only to a degree. Mm. Uh, I mean, I guess the Beatles had achieved everything they set out to achieve and a hundred times more. Yeah. Um, so there was nowhere else. There was nothing that they wanted to do together or hadn't done together. So I guess there were... No mountains left to climb, I guess. No. I mean, mm. you know, it was, it was, if they did, it, it was just repeating themselves. So it was kind of like they'd run out of steam, I think. Mm. Like any relationships do. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we split up because the Beatles split up or any of the split up because the Beatles split up. I think it's a natural it's a natural thing. Things come to an end. Um and when we split up, uh I don't think it was that different really. I don't think we we hit the heights that we wanted to. Mm. We did okay. It was, it was just, you know, you're right, I've, I've spoken about it many, many times, but just briefly, it was about the fact that the two main pulses, the two main creative pulses of me and Lord Cream uh, and Graham and Eric were kind of thinking about things in a, in a slightly different way. 
and me and Lol being our student boys, wanted to keep disrupting, <laughs> whereas the other two wanted to keep working on stuff that they felt would work. <laughs> you know, what I mean? yes. we were we were, wanted to keep searching for them for new things, and that's why we split up. But we, the weird thing is that we we didn't have to. Mm. That is the bizarre. I'm glad we did, looking back, because we wouldn't have had all the other many adventures if we had stuck together. But there was no real reason why we had to. You know, we could have gone off and done our little solo project, learned some stuff, and then come back. If it still didn't work, then we'd go our separate ways. But, you know... Well, I think in some ways there wasn't much of a precedent at the time for this kind of stuff. I mean, nowadays... You have, say, someone like um, Damon Alburn or somebody who's able to weave in and out of different projects, and it's all good, you know. Yeah. But I think back then it was it, there was maybe it was to do with more of an artistic purity. It's an all or nothing type thing. Yeah, um, that kind of take is, is is what happens, you know. Yeah, I mean that's the only that's the only wisdom I can I can offer. <laughs> well, there was yeah, there was a, there was an interview you gave where you said that. The, the band at the time was was not democratic or smart enough to to sort of encompass that way of working, and it seems to me that that's that's a phrase that could be applied to the Beatles in 1970. That that, <laughs> as Jason said, there was no template for that. Now it's a common thing for people to go off do their own projects, come back, coalesce, split. It's it's, it's you know that that particular business, uh, in a way, hadn't hadn't matured. To that level, and I don't think attitudes have matured to that level and understood that that was possible. Mm-hmm. I think I think you're right. I think Jason is right when he said that uh, it was an all or nothing thing. Mm. You know, like the Three Musketeers, we stick together, <laughs> uh, and if we can't do that, then fuck you. Uh, <laughs> but it wasn't that. It was more that it was, it was. We just couldn't face doing another album if we knew exactly what the album was going to sound like. Mm. If you know what I mean, it was, yeah. it was getting, it was starting to head towards that kind of a template. We have to have a funny one. We have to have a long, complicated. <laughs> we have yeah. to have a nerve one. You know. Yeah. That wasn't kind of that wasn't what made it exciting in the first place. Yeah. So we, you know, we were we were still young. We we had a we had other things we wanted to do. Um, and and was there always that? pull to the visual side of things to that that at that stage uh, not as much i think i think our i think godly and cream songs are always always very visual mm. and i think that's partially because we always saw ourselves as something other than musicians or something as well as musicians and that one day maybe we want to end up behind a camera mm. shooting something or other because we came from a visual background and we missed that Really. Yeah. Um, so we came out in the music. Yeah. Um, well, and we had a very definite, distinctive way of looking at making music, um, which had no had no business component attached to it. It was a purely creative exercise. Whereas I think with the other two, there was that, and I'm not saying it's a, right, a bad thing or a wrong thing, but they had an a, a, an idea of or a sense of what 10CC was about and should continue to be about. Hmm. Uh, whereas we didn't agree with it. Well, yeah. I suppose is that that idea of the, the sort of traditional songwriting, I mean, I'm not using the phrase Tin Pan Alley in a pejorative way, but there's that sort of traditional songwriting side and then there's the art school side with the visual hmm. aspect. And as you say, that, that idea of disruption. 
that, that if you get yeah. something, then you you dismantle it and, and you head somewhere else or you throw the pieces yeah. up in the air and see where they land. That's right. That's right. Um, and we'd had a good few hits by then. Hmm. So, you know, there was pressure, if you like. You know, we had people working for us. We had management. We had management. Hmm. We had a road crew. We had responsibilities. So perhaps that sense of, of daring had been eroded a little bit, hmm. you know, um, as it does. One of the obsessions at the time was the Gizmotron, which is you know, a fascinating object. And yeah. uh, it, Paul McCartney uses one on his London Town album. Uh, did, was that something you had to sell him on directly or did he call you up and say, I need a Gizmotron or? I can't remember. I, um, I think we had, I mean, if the Gizmotron, or the Gizmos we called it back then, existed during the Hot Legs album sessions. Mm. I think that's where it came about. And we had one kind of lashed together. We had a prototype made um, by the College of Science and Technology in Manchester. And uh, I think it was permanently strapped onto, onto one of Moll's guitars. So he may have tried it uh, on those on the Mike Gear sessions. Mm, before, right. I, know. I can't remember. Um, but... Um, Sorry, I've forgotten the question. <laughs> I guess how did it how did it end up? Uh, how did Paul McCartney end up playing one on his album? It's a very you know. It's what year a great, was it? It was seventy eight. Seventy eight. It's on. I'm carrying on London Town. And we we may have. I'm trying to remember when the production version of the Gizmotron came out. Um, it, it may have already been in production by mm. then, and if so, that's probably what it was. If not. He probably borrowed Lost Guitar. I was going to say, this is, this is what we find he, uh, he stole it and uh, never gave it back or something. Really. <laughs> I know, honestly, no. I mean, uh, but it's great. I mean, a number of artists used it. I mean, Jimmy Page used it. Susie yeah. and she's used it. Uh, is that, it's the introduction to uh, In Through the Eye Tour in the evening, isn't that? Yeah. That gives me trance. Yeah, that's, yeah. But that must be a thrill that, you know, you know, yeah. to be able to hear your work. It's brilliant. In that mean, way. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it didn't sell very many because the timing was shit. Mm. It, it hit the market when cheap synthesizers were coming out. Um, and as you probably know, it was it was kind of very vulnerable. Tricky, yeah. yeah. If, you know, the heat in the room would change it, the air pressure would change it. Uh, you couldn't rely on it to sound like an orchestra. But there's so many things I've seen, so many ideas you've had over the years which seem to be ahead of their time. Like the gizmo yeah. seems like a kind of a Kickstarter idea back in the 70s, you know? That yeah. You can I imagine mean, something coming up. I think it's because I was now. born prematurely. <laughs> uh, so I've either been trying to slow things down or speed things up to catch up. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, that, that does happen. We have done and still continue to come up with ideas that are ahead of the time. Mm. Which, which is kind of satisfying in a way, but not if people don't understand what the hell they are. Yes, yes, absolutely. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, well, as we progress through your career, you know, uh, yourself uh, uh, and Lol Cream move into the video industry. And that kind of happens... Am I right in saying that kind of happens by accident through an Englishman in New York, that it wasn't necessarily on the roadmap? Yeah. All the good things do. Good. We, we, <laughs> we, uh, we had an Englishman in New York, New York out as a single, and we weren't a touring band, so we couldn't gig. Uh, so we thought, well, okay, uh, let's make a little film. Mm. And I'm trying to remember what outlets there were for little films. There was, I think... Uh, was Kenny Everett on the air at that point? Mm-hmm. Kenny Everett, I'm kind of thinking of that kind of... Kenny Everett, on yeah. the old Great Whistle Test. Yeah. You know, these little kind of boutique shows that were the wrong time occasionally played music videos, but they weren't called that then. <laughs> they were called anything. And, um, yeah, so we shot a label with this sort of eight-frame storyboard uh, for Englishmen in New York, I said, okay, yeah, let's do it. But you can't direct it. You've never done it before. Mm. So we have to get a, a director. Uh, they've got a guy called Derek Burbage, who, who was the director who did, I think he did the first three or four uh, promos for the police. And so we were just the artists, really. But we kept our eyes and ears open all day. And... We were looking at each other all the time, going, this is fucking brilliant, this stuff. What's that? It's a camera. Oh, my. What's he doing now? Oh, wow, okay. We were, we were soaking up, assimilating this, this experience, which, whether we knew it or not, we've been waiting all our lives for. Particularly when we insisted on being there during the edit, we kind of started to take over, embarrassingly. But he was, Derek was very sweet about it. I think he sensed that, that it was important to us. Hmm. And let us try everything, you know. What happens if you press this button? Don't press that button. <laughs> uh, what happens if you wiggle this and turn that? And, you know, the old disruptive thing was coming into play again. But we learned, learned a lot on, on for that one video. Yes. And so... What happened was, when it actually came out, right about the same time, Steve Strange, who we knew, uh, just formed Visage, and he insisted that we direct his first music video. Because mm. he knew us. Uh, and most of the other people who were directing videos at the time weren't remotely connected to the music business at all. 
And so he felt comfortable talking to people who were other musicians. Uh, and as you say, the rest is history. And I think that's part of why we did quite well, because we understood music. Yes. The inner life of the music rather than just, you know, the ABC of putting an idea on film. But I do like early on how you're very much about, you know, playing with the form, pushing tricks in on the camera. Like one of my favorite early ones is the Wide Boy video, which isn't very well yeah. known, I don't think. But no. there are so many, uh, uh, and I love, I hope you know what I mean, but this kind of the analog aspect of it, of the trickery in it, <laughs> that it's it's so much fun. It's uh, it's it's really clever and thought out, but it, 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 it shows a, a different way of thinking to the other kind of clips of the time. I think one of the things that, that we realized very early on in what you might call a career is it's pointless trying to do what everybody else is doing. Hmm. It's, you know, because most of the time they can do it better than you because they have more experience. So the thing was, and it's what we learned doing the first 10cc albums, if you just think of things you want to see, there's always a way to make it happen. And it doesn't matter if anyone's not done it before because that's actually quite cool if you're going to be the first. So figure out a way of making it happen. If you can see it in your mind's eye and you know it looks good and you trust your own taste buds, mm. then just do it. And thankfully, in the early days of music video, there was no, there was no jury that had to, no marketing jury that had to assess your idea over seven other people. Put in, uh, but I heard you talk about this before, that with music video, you kind of got in on the ground floor, or maybe with pop music, there'd already yeah. been formed there. That's and right. We were at the beginning of it, so we moulded it to a degree. Yeah. And that, that must be a different kind of thrill, because the making it up as you go along aspect of it uh, is, is totally different to, you know, the, where there's a pop music form when you're making the pop music. Yeah, it is different. I mean, with music, it's easy. <laughs> Yeah. To a degree. I, I mean, technically it's easy because it's just you and the studio and whatever team you've got around you. If you're making any kind of film and it's different and you want to see things differently, then you have to talk to your, your uh, director of photography, the sound guy, the wardrobe, the, um, the art director. There's all these components mm. that you have to bring into your vision to make it work. Uh, so there are many other people's taste buds to, to factor into the process, which makes it a lot more difficult. It's, it's a more difficult process. Um, but we, you know, we were lucky. We found a bunch of people who, who liked our ideas and helped us to make them as close to the original concepts as possible. Mm. And so with success uh, in, in the music video realm, uh, the Beatles come knocking and we really want to talk about the cooler, which is a very odd little thing. We want to talk about it for about three or four hours, if that's okay with you. <laughs> we were in Los Angeles at the time when we got the, got the cool. I don't remember what the hell we were doing there. We may have been, we may have been filming the police synchronicity, or not synchronicity, wrapped around your finger or something like that when we got to a call, yeah, to do... And I think it was Paul who called us. Well, it's, it's an interesting thing because it's a Ringo song, but it's produced by Paul, it seems. It's an MPL project. Well, there are three songs. Three yeah, songs. Three yeah. songs. So, so, so yeah. what, 
what what was the the brief or what was the like did did you write it or were you given the ideas by Paul or Ringo or what was I don't I don't I think what happened was you know obviously we let's listen to the tracks mm. and we usually started on them. But then we had to think of some kind of way of wrapping the whole thing up into a little short film. Um, so we came up, and you know, we knew that, that, that Ringo loved acting and loved playing around. Mm. So we just wanted to give him a vehicle that would, uh, that, would, that would work as a kind of way of gluing all these things together. So just, we just, just came for, up with this idea like a prison escape thing, which is pretty cool. So for people who are listening that, that won't necessarily have seen the cooler, this is this is private property, attention, sure to fall, three three songs off the Stop and Smell the Roses album, which was Ringo's 1982 album. Yeah. Paul is heavily involved in that. But this 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 project comes sometime after the album has been uh, released. Um, really? I don't remember that. I don't remember the timeline, but uh... Yeah, the album. The album, I think, comes out late '81, and then this is filmed in 1982. Okay. Um, so it's one of the first, I suppose. I was going to say high-profile project, you, you know, but you've you've got McCartney and Ringo Starr together, which yeah. would be one of one of the sort of first times that they'd have, they'd have worked it's together cool. for quite a while. Bit of a coup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I remember it was a lot of fun actually doing it. <laughs> Well, you had, um, you had Linda and Barbara back, and it was... Yes. It was <laughs> I mean, looking back, we should have done it on location. Yeah. Uh, we ended up building all these... I was going to it, it has a particular look. I mean, it does have a, 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 a sort of a look, a sort of almost, I, I want to say almost like a spaghetti western look. It's a box kind of look. The book you're broken for is cheap. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know why we did that. I think it was... I think it just, after having many discussions with production and understanding what our budget might be, it, we all kind of came to the conclusion that we could build all this stuff in the studio and not have to worry about weather and hmm. things like this because it wasn't a day shoot. It was probably two or three day shoots. Um, but it, it, was, it was quite limiting in a way. The, the, the studio wasn't quite big enough yeah. to, to get satisfying crane shots of the the prison gates opening and moving towards the back of the truck and all that. It was a little bit, a little bit compact, shall we say. <laughs> I, have it, to say, I have to say it does look as if it was a lot of fun to do. <laughs> it was hysterical. <laughs> yeah, I, I watched it, it last it, week in preparation for this and it's, it's, got a, it's got a great charm to it and it's, it's always just fun to see Paul and Ringo larking, basically. Oh, I know. And it, yes. it, it ends up at the, the Cannes Film Festival. No way, really? Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a MPL put out a, 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 a sort of a, a promotional description and it said, a new mini film produced by MPL Communications called The Cooler recently entered in the short film category in the Cannes Film Festival <laughs> in May. Did it it is a short... Like sort of best use of faux Nazi uniforms. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you like the description. It says, it is a short musical psychodrama starring Ringo Starr, Barbara Bach, Paul and Linda set in a prison camp policed entirely by women somewhere sometime in the future. What's not to love? What's not to love? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but it's yeah, for 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 listeners to the podcast who haven't seen it, it's it's all it's up in well its glory on, on YouTube. It's it's yeah, it's, 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 it's time though, isn't it? Yeah, it's a little it's a little it's a little time capsule. It's great, but as, as Stephen said, it's kind of particularly in that tragic, you know, you know, in the aftermath of of John's death, it's 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 interesting to see the two of them together, and it's one of the first things that kind of comes out after his his death, and it's uh, it's uh, yeah, I think it's it's good fun, um, but um, then. We- we didn't even shoot it on film. We shot it on video for some reason, yeah. which, makes, which probably adds to the character, but reduces the cost. Great. It doesn't look that great. It does look very of its time. <laughs> um, but a few years later, I'm guessing the budget was a bit bigger for When We Was Fab, which is another video oh, you're often. Yeah, yeah. And again, Ringo's on the scene and... Uh, when we was fab, when I read your book, uh, Space Cake, y- you certainly described very well how music videos move towards your own particular vision. And then after the years, it becomes, as you say, a market driven, you're almost told what to do. Uh, I'm guessing when we was fab was very much, you know, a, a, your idea pitched to, to George. Is that right? Yeah. And what uh, what was that process like? Was that a, 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 an easy video to to imagine or to put together, or because uh, it's not a it's it, it's not a retro video. It could have been a retro video, but it's not. It's 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 a very striking, clean kind of uh, setup for that video. I mean, I think I think probably the biggest thing, the biggest problem we had with our ideas rather than so not just this particular video was that there was no such thing as digital video. Everything yeah. was still analog. So with anything that involved layers of things going on, every time you added a new layer, you lost quality. Hmm. And blue screen or green screen, that particular technique wasn't as sophisticated as it should have been. So there was always nasty lines and things <laughs> around the edges of people. Uh, we kind of went ahead and did it anyway. <laughs> but it could have looked so much better. But, um, yeah, we, we, I don't know. We, we, didn't, we didn't feel like we were trying to do something or we should be trying to do something more traditional because mm. at the time I think George had had a few solo hits of his own anyway. He, he sort of broken out as a solo artist. Um, so this was just one of a string of, of George Harrison tracks, if I'm correct. Yeah. Uh, so we just had this, this, this slightly bizarre idea of him standing against the wall and, and growing various extra limbs, <laughs> if you like. And I think it was because it was kind of a slightly psychedelic idea, which is what the song is kind of about, harking back to yes. those years. And it kind of worked. Um, well, I, the thing that was, that was most difficult was were those things towards the end where we have walking buildings and um, George is against the wall and he lifts his legs up and he's sort of <laughs> hanging in space and becomes like an Indian image, uh, a multi-limbed Indian, uh, Indian image. Um, but nevertheless, it, it actually turned out rather well. So looking at it now, it looks the actual quality is a bit shabby. But as you say, that sort of gives it something of its time. I, I, I was going to say that, that, a, yeah. that sort of grainy, that, that, that sort of look is sort of integral to the 
To the whole thing. The, 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 to the whole thing. Oh, well, yeah. if you're saying that, we obviously <laughs> that yes, ab- ab- oh, absolutely. It was totally designed into the original idea. Yeah. Well, that's that's <laughs> yeah, what I thought. That's that, that's yeah. what I thought. But it, yeah. it 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 absolutely pitch perfectly ticks so many boxes with the sort of Beatles, you know, the Sergeant Pepper uniform and the the apple and and all of those things. It just ticks so many. It's it's a beautiful thing. Um, <laughs> So, again, it was a fun day. We had a good laugh. Everybody enjoyed it very, very much. Like, like Ringo and Elton John. Yeah, can I, can I ask a question? Did Paul Simon just happen to be wheeling a cart past the studio? And you Paul got into Simon? Is, well, the, is Paul Simon in the video? You're going to tell us Paul Simon isn't in the video. Oh, where do you see Paul Simon? All of the commentary talks about Paul Simon being in the video. He's the guy pushing the cart. That's what people think. The guy pushing the cart. There's, there's a the, one of the wipes is a guy pushing a cart from across the screen, and yeah. there's a, there's a core group of people online who think that that person is Paul Simon. I've never met Paul Simon. <laughs> oh, that, you, you heard you heard it here first. <laughs> we were both pretty we were both pretty stunned in those days. <laughs> so it's possible, but yeah. No. I don't remember. Why do they say it's Paul? I'm going to I, 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 well, they get carried away because they can see Elton John and it Neil Aspinall is in it. He's probably Ringo. <laughs> there are layers of things happening. Yeah. Paul Simon? I can't, yeah, this is, this is a... This is a Does it look like Paul Simon? Not really. I, I mean, like it a, is if you're told it is, but I don't it, think yeah. so. Who said it was? <laughs> If you, yeah, we're just looking looking at various sort of commentary online about this bit, and it's in several places that the people are in the video. It's you know, it's uh, it's George, it's Neil Aspinall, it's Elton John, and Paul Simon. Well, that's a no from that's Mr. No Godley. Well, this is this is a... from the director's mouth, but as a, you know, the caveat being that we were we were a bit stunned, as well, you the, would. The thing I remember at the time, I remember very well that video coming out. And uh, certainly, I have to admit, it was many years later I saw a picture from the set and I realised that there was a, that, that it was done by superimposing George's head. I didn't realise that at the time, so I certainly didn't see the join back in the day. No, we didn't superimpose. Was there not a thing of superimposing George's head? Am I totally wrong? Was there not parts of it? Or there, there was a body made that he stuck his head into, was it? Or how did it work? Oh, yes, that's right. He's... Um... <laughs> I think he stuck his head through the wall and there was a, a prosthetic. It's not for all the shots, then. I'm just trying to remember. I think for a lot of it, he's actually there playing the guitar mm-hmm. and there are holes in the wall with arms coming through behind him. Yeah. But there may have been a prosthetic version of it where he had to stick his head through the wall. I, yeah. Wow, well, you're all digging deep. Well, one of the things I remember at the time when the video came out was this big hubbub that it was supposed to be Paul, George and Ringo playing together. And obviously, Paul McCartney, we assume, is not in that walrus costume in the background. Right. He was our manager. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. Uh, was that a... Uh, I'm wondering, you know, one of the things we've learned about reading a lot about the Beatles and doing this podcast is that there's an awful lot of politics around the Beatles world. Uh, right. and, and I'm wondering, you know, was this project, did you get a sense of that kind of political nature of them as an entity? Not at all. No. Really? Okay. No. 
<laughs> and we were walking away. <laughs> no, we didn't. It was just a. It was just a. We had a very specific idea. We, I, I remember that we we storied, storyboarded in in quite a lot of detail. Yeah, because it was important. Um, and we just filmed it, and everyone was very accommodating. I don't remember any anything political. Nothing that was apparent on set. Uh, and was that George? that approached you or his people approached you to say, we'd like you to... What's that? I can't remember. Hmm. Honestly, so I, I appreciate we're just obsessively pouring over this. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's very embarrassing that we're doing this. But, no, 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 no. We, 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 I remember that we visited, visited George at, at his house, Friar Park. Park. Uh, I think we was, we went there to talk about it, but uh, I can't remember who got in touch mm. to, to to sort of offer us the, the job um, because it was different. You know, mostly it's the label or a manager mm. or something like that. But uh, was that was that your first contact with George? Is that the first time you'd met George, or uh, I think it was. Yeah. Okay. And, and Paul Simon wasn't there at that time. <laughs> I think we've conclusively shown that Paul Simon <laughs> is, yeah, is not there. We're, yeah, we're going to have to get Paul Simon on the podcast to confirm this. Um, <laughs> yeah, he probably said he was. There is, a, there is another, there is another yeah. rumour online about that video amongst the Beatle uh, fandom. Beatle mania is a nice way of putting it. Obsessiveness is another way. Is that uh, Paul McCartney is hidden in the video, that he's the wobbly man who wipes across the screen. But I'm, uh, I'm sure you're going to burst our bubble and say that he's oh, the, the drunk. Video. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the drunk guy, no. yeah. No, that was an extra. There we go. Jeez, see? Well, we're just. Th this is the level of detail I know that people will say, you didn't ask Kevin Godley. Uh, who the individual people were <laughs> <laughs> in the video. Um, the Quick, next... Move on, move on. Move move on, move on, move on. Move on. Any of those early uh, news conferences that Bob Dylan did? Oh, yeah. It's a bit like that, isn't it? Where people are asking, you know, why did you wear that T-shirt with the motorcycle thing? That's it. Yeah, a photograph taken for Highway 66. It's nine. It was just what yeah. I was wearing on the day, man. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, people want their heroes to be super normal or super abnormal. Well, I, th I think sometimes fans forget that people are working and they're doing a job and they're getting it done and it's, you know, yeah. uh, you yeah. know, uh, not, not their ever, relationship, not yeah, their relationship not. with the art is different to the artist's relationship to the art. I think a lot yeah. of fans totally miss the point on that. Yeah. Not everything has a hidden meaning. No. Yeah. Sorry, I, I, I fear we've ruined your day. Or we, <laughs> no, we, no, you're, no, you're, no. You're... <laughs> I have to immediately go and check the video. That's what <laughs> I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, all, we're all going to go and check the video. Um, if we're staying on the video theme, you then, uh, you know, you've done a Ringo video, you've done a George video, you do a Paul video You in, in, in the early 90s, yeah, you do Come On was, People. That was great. I've actually, I've actually been doing this series uh, on Instagram. I've been putting up stills from a lot of the videos that I made. Um, uh, and that was one of them. Yeah. Uh, what was it called? It was Come On People was the song. Come On People, Yes. That was that was a very interesting interesting project. Again, it was something that I wanted to try uh, that actually worked, combining two different speeds 
yeah. right in one shot. It's quite difficult to. And is that a digitally controlled camera you're doing that with? Yeah, motion control. Yeah. It's called motion control. It's a computer-driven camera crane. So you can program it to do a move, and it would repeat that move, mm. whatever you put actually in, in, in the same shot. But in this case, it was a matter of changing the camera move to accommodate a time-lapse situation as well as a real-time situation. So it's quite complex. Um, yeah, it, it still looks very good today because it's, uh, you know, you, you, you know, one way of doing it would have been obviously to to get Paul to sing really slowly and he's sped up as well. But yeah. instead you actually get this very, it's still a very striking effect between the fast and the, the regular motion. Like that. Is that more rain, is it? Have you got that as well? No, the rain has stopped in Dublin. <laughs> We've got yours. Sorry about that. Belfast spine. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. That's, uh, yeah, that's that not good. Yeah, that was good fun. It was a, I think it was a couple of days, probably two days shooting. We went really late on the last day. Yeah. But again, we, we, it was in a big studio. I think we shot it in Ray Studios. Uh, I'm grateful. This, this, it's funny. I did a little sort of anecdote about it in, in the Instagram thing. There's a shot towards the end where Paul's playing and he goes, he kind of points off camera. Um, he's pointing at me because I think I just tripped over a wire. Yeah. I'm sort of right. around and I sort of fell over the wires. That's <laughs> <laughs> what actually happened. Uh, one of the things I've just realised we missed out in the chronology was Paul appears on a Godly and Cream album. He sings on, uh, is it uh, yes. Get Well Soon? Get Well Get Soon. Well soon yeah. how, how, how did that happen? We just thought it'd be kind of cool. You know, it's one of those kind of pipe dreams. Wouldn't it be cool? Just stick them on. Sign backing vocals on that track. <laughs> yeah. Well, why don't we ask him? What? Why don't we ask him? <laughs> All right, well, that's, you know, there's no fucking way. But there was a way. And he said, yeah, okay. Yeah. And we showed up uh, for an afternoon and, and sang. <laughs> <laughs> It, it sometimes is that simple. Asking is the first step to getting any of this stuff done, yeah, really, isn't it? It's brilliant. I mean, you know, when you, when you get to that stage in life and you get one of your all-time heroes mm. to actually perform on one of your songs, it doesn't get any better. Yeah, yeah. Um, but all roads kind of lead to the big project, which is actually directing a Beatles video, the real love video. And yeah. that's that's I, a, call it, I call it the Threetles. The Threetles. The Threetles, yes. yeah. And uh, I'm wondering, did you, you know, uh, it's it seems the anthology project, you know, there's there's an awful lot of back and forth between the Threetles themselves. And was it the fact that you'd worked with each one of them individually before that, you know, you were, you you ticked the box three times, or how did it end up? Uh, becoming something you got involved in. I'm trying to remember the chronology of this. Um, there was another project I did for Paul, and I can't recall if, if it was after this or before it. He was touring... In, oh, it was 93. It was before you did the tour film. I, yeah. Yeah, when I did a, a pre, pre-stage film for... So when was... When was um, Real, Real Love? Love was 95. Oh, um, like, it, it, so yeah. I don't remember. So in other words, we worked together a few times before we knew each other. Mm. At the time, we were neighbours as well. Ah. So, yeah, we lived reasonably close to each other. Um, and I think that 
they'd already had a hit with the previous song, which was that very, it was beautiful. Um, Free as a bird. Sort of flying camera that went into elements of, mm. uh, from their past. And they wanted to do something this time that was a little, a little more documentary based and using archive footage. Um, it was, again, a thrill, obviously. Um, and the archive footage was brilliant. <laughs> you, you know, you, you, you could really get the sense uh, that they were really enjoying, they were really enjoying what the hell was happening to them. However ridiculous it got and outrageous it got, they, they found ways to have fun with it. And that, that was so clear <laughs> on the footage. They were having a ball. So, so this we, is the we, video we, camera footage that you got, is it, of the three of them in no, the studio? No, oh, no, no, no. Oh, no. You mean, what was it, the series they did at the time? Um, they did a very big series, a retro series, The History of the Beatles. Um, anthology. anthology. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and we had access to, to some of that footage. Okay. Uh, and there's quite a bit of that footage in it, alongside the, uh, the uh, fly on the wall stuff of the, of the studio. Um, I wasn't there for that. By the mm. way, this was stuff that was being filled anyway. Uh, my role was really to come up with a sort of a bit of glue, if you like, visual glue, which was I took the idea of uh, Yoko's original film of John in super slow motion and had the other three do it as a kind of link. But there was another few things like the uh, John's white piano rising up out of the Mersey and some Beatle memorabilia floating through the air. I don't know. I just kind of felt that, that yes, of course, it can be archive-based and documentary-based and have that very, that kind of fly-on-the-wall vibe about it. But you can't really do anything about the Beatles without some magic. Yes. Something magical, something... I don't like the word psychedelic particularly, but something that, that's reminiscent of that. Uh, so that, that's creatively what I, what I brought to it. Um, uh, and the rest was just archive and then just playing around in the edit. There was, there is a, an embarrassing story about the edit <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that we were given a mix to work with. Uh, and the, the record wasn't actually out yet, I don't think. Uh, there was so a lot of secrecy were, at the time. There was. Mm. And the mix was a rough mix, and John's voice was very low in the mix. And it, it wasn't a good listen. You know, I, you know, being a musician, when I'm working to a piece of music, I like to hear the music. And this, it wasn't all there. Yeah. So to make it clear for me, just for the purposes of the edit, as a workaround, uh, I went into a, a little sound studio and sang over the top of John just so I could hear the fucking song. You know? <laughs> um, and then we worked to that. Yeah. And somehow it got leaked onto the internet. Hmm. So it's out there somewhere, you know, John, Paul, George, Ringo and Kev. <laughs> we'll have to go looking for that. <laughs> yeah, you will. <laughs> I'm sure um, you will. Um, but, that, but that would have made you one of the first people to hear those Threetal reunion songs. That's a lot of, that's a heavy burden if you don't like it or if you think, oh, I, I don't want to. I didn't hear them. I only heard that one. That one. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Um, but you know what, Buzz? Absolutely. What a, yeah. what a, what a thing. You know, I, I, John was the only, the only one that I never met. Mm. Uh, obviously met the others. 
both in their solo incarnations and, and as, as three. Uh, but it's one of those moments in your life that you kind of cherish. So did that project bring you face to face with the three of them at the same time or were you kind of working in isolation? No, they were all, they were all uh, I filmed them all separately. Yeah, because those bits are lovely where you interstill with the, the you intermix with the John. Uh, yes. They're absolutely just, stunning. That was just a matter of, um, yeah, it kind of feels like they're in the same place at the same time. Yeah. But it was just a matter of finding shots that made that idea work or coming across them and then thinking, oh, if I make that happen before there, it looks like John's looking at Paul or whatever. Mm. I mean, those things are quite simple. It's just, it's just deciding which shots to use. It's just part of the editing process. And were you, it was an editing process probably more than anything else. And were you given a, a sort of a, a relatively free hand in, in, in how it was put together? Or was there, I mean, one of the things that we, Jason and I have talked about before about the whole anthology project is this idea of the compromises that the three individuals are making in putting the team together. So George gets Jeff Lynn as the producer, Paul gets Jeff Emmerich, who is his man, and then George gets someone else who is his man. And arguably, you're, you're, you're the one person that all three of them would have ticked the box to say, yes, we, we're, we're all very happy with him, um, because you'd worked with them all before. I guess. Uh, <laughs> I never thought of it like that. I didn't actually know what, what, what you just told me. Yeah, I mean, the whole, the, the whole, Jeff as well. Well, did they have three Jeffs? <laughs> well, maybe that maybe that was it. Maybe that was it. The whole, the whole, the whole, the whole project is 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 a compromise in in, in like picking right. Mark Lewis and the the author has described it as children picking a team in a playground. You know, uh, right? To, but it it did occur to us. Jason and I were talking before this and saying that you're you're probably the one person involved in that project that that had the confidence of all three of them. Having worked with him all before, I never thought that, but that is lovely. Hmm. That is lovely. Um, so I know we're we're taking a lot of your time, but we we might bring it up to date because uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I I know you've got a new album coming out called Muscle Memory in December. Yeah. And when we were kind of going through bits and pieces before this, one of one of the, the quotes you have is that you've said technology is the new Beatles. That's a, a thing I've heard you say before. <laughs> and I know that technology uh, in terms of quite, quite quote. I'm not sure what it means, but it's, it's not. <laughs> I think I think I think it's in the terms of, you know, it's 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 just this notion of being at the vanguard of creativity. And, uh, you know, technology yeah. is that tool we have now. And I know in terms of your new album, you know, you, you've used technology to to uh, to work with musicians from around the world. And again, this was another idea you might have had before its time, because I know you did One World, One Voice years ago. And this is a, a version of this that's kind of being pulled right up into 2020. Yeah, it's. I think it's because I'm a drummer. And, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the traditional songwriting process for most of my life has been sitting opposite somebody who can play a proper instrument. And while they play... I mumble and warble and write notes and sing. So my only other musical tool, apart from the drums, is singing. But I, it's very difficult to do that on your own. <laughs> so, and a couple of, I assume you're going to ask me, are you going to ask me what the process was? Or, well, well, yes, uh, I suppose you should tell us what the process was. I'm being very mystical here. <laughs> no, no, no. It was, it was 
it was because of something, again, one of those random things that happened. A couple of people uh, totally unrelated to each other, I don't know, over a period of about six months, sent me two pieces of instrumental music and asked if I'd be interested in writing and performing a song over them, in other words, composing something and singing it. And uh, I'd never done that before. Um, so I tried it, and it worked really well. It was it was it was like sitting opposite with some opposite to somebody, but they'd already written it, and they weren't badgering me for a cup of coffee every ten minutes. So it worked, and it was enjoyable, and I could. There was nobody I had to answer to particularly. So I, I recorded it. I used Garage Band and recorded these two songs and sent them back to them, and they both thought, thought they were great. Um, they've actually both, both songs have ended up on the album. Um, but I kind of figured when that thing hit me about, well, it'd be nice to make an album. I haven't made any proper music for a long, long time. Mm. If you are going to make an album, you do want to write songs, why not do it this way? But open, open the idea up to include everybody and anybody, not just professional musicians, in quote marks. Because um, the tools for making music were and still are very readily available and cheap nowadays. A lot of records are made on a laptop. So people who you wouldn't expect to be able to make music can make music, and in many cases, far more exciting music than those you would expect uh, to be making exciting music. Because, again, there's another layer of rule-breaking. So that's what I did, and I I did it through a site called um, Pledge Music, which essentially were a crowdfunding site. But you pledged to buy a record, but also do a Q&A with me or get a T-shirt or or come to an event or appear in a video, something like that. The purpose of doing that was to raise a small budget for me to actually finish the record, once I got past demo stage, but unfortunately, Pledge, Pledge Music went bankrupt. So I had to start all over again. I had the songs from or most of them. So I joined um, uh, a small UK label who, who kind of found me and found this idea and uh, really liked it and invited me to join their label. They're called State 51 Conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've got a great relationship. Uh, we, it's a very creative and constructive relationship. Um, but they've been releasing the album, should we say, in a kind of episodic way. They've been putting tracks out every two weeks mm. um, with a view to releasing the finished thing on all four months, and I think it's on December the 17th. So it's, it's more like a sort of TV series, if you like, because they're all little stories. Um, building up to the binge box set <laughs> on December the 17th. It has been great fun. Uh, I really, again, earlier in, in this discussion, I, I mentioned about finding your own voice. I found another voice doing this, my own, my own personal voice, without the encumbrance of, of having to answer to anybody else. Um, yeah. It's the best of both worlds in a way because you get to collaborate and you get to do your own thing. It's uh, it's kind of perfect. Yeah, it's, and, it's, and I've never met any of these. I've met one of them before. 
Um, one of my collaborators was Gaucher. Oh, yes. Uh, um, but the others, I've had phone conversations with them, and, you know, obviously a lot of emails going backwards and forwards. But I haven't met them. That's fantastic. I mean, I have to admit, uh, you know, when Expecting a Message came out, that was the first one that came out, and it was kind of Spotify, I think, just nudged me in the direction of it. And I was like, oh, Kevin Godley's got new music. And yeah. to actually hear you sing again and for it to have been so darn good it's it's a, it's, it's a bit of a thrill it's uh it's it's, it's yeah, great you today actually you today okay um thank you that's nice to hear uh and i guess there's still it it's you're very much a pro technology guy though i mean it's 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 i i because I, I think some people tend to go well sure if everybody can record stuff it's no good but talent still rises the good stuff still is good irrespective of how it's made would you would you agree with that yeah it's always been like that really whatever the technology is you know probably before there was any technology and people just play stuff you know the good stuff did rise to the surface because it was good you know people people just find it yeah and there is still good stuff out there i think the biggest problem with technology is that there is so much stuff out there it is, it is, in a way, difficult to, to sort the wheat from the chaff. Mm. Um, there's no boredom anymore. There's no what? There's no boredom anymore. No, but we are very spoiled. Mm. We're very spoiled. So if we don't like something in the first 10 seconds, we yeah. click a button and go and listen to something else. You know, there, there's the sort of dark side of that coin. Um, it's the attention. Right. It's the attention span. No one has any attention span anymore. No, we obviously do. Well, we do. We do. Yeah, we do. All souls. <laughs> but I mean, that, that is kind of weird, and that's a challenge. Um, but it, I don't. I kind of don't dwell on that. I just. I'm just looking at the technology as as extra tools for the toolbox to to get stuff out there. I guess. Mm. Um, well, and, it's, I mean, it's like. It's as long as it doesn't become technology for technology's sake. Okay. Um, couldn't. And, that, and that's, that's never been the case with what you've done. You're, you're, you're sort of seem always to be pushing slightly ahead of the technology and we're, the technology is catching up with some well, of the things that you were... about that, but one, one thing I found is I never thought most of the stuff I do traditionally, I'd like to sort of sit back and, you know, tell, tell an engineer to have more base or let's take two frames off that cut and move it three seconds later. I've learned how to do all that now. I've, I've mastered, to a degree, uh, garage band, which isn't the most, which isn't the hardest piece of audio technology there is, but I used it to do all the vocals for, for the album. And I've learned how to edit video. I've, I now use uh, Adobe Premiere Pro at right. home. And I found to my surprise that I'm, I'm getting relatively instinctive about, you know, what to do, what buttons to press. Occasionally something disastrous happens, you know, I wipe something, it's taken 15 hours to do. But not as, but it's, it's not a major catastrophe anymore. I know how to fix it. So I've learned, I've learned a number of skills by deciding to get involved in technology. Uh, that I didn't think I'd be able to do. So a lot, of, and that's basically come about because of this album. I, I, 
and come about because of the disastrous collapse of pledge music. Mm. Um, I kind of figured that oh, I, have to, I have to do this at home. Mm. You know, I didn't have a budget to go and make it yet, so I've got to kind of finish the vocals at home. <laughs> um, so I did, you know. It is um, interesting. Years ago, I used to play with like an old Tascam four-track tape machine. Yeah. And I remember when Garage Band came out going, oh, this, this, is, <laughs> this is phenomenally sophisticated and it's free. Yeah. It's, it's it pretty crazy. It's crazy. The only one thing I haven't figured out to do yet, which everybody else has, <laughs> is how to play something. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's one of the things like, that annoys me about technology. The assumption, the instructions have that you know that bit that they've left out. Yeah. You know? Oh, well, you have to press that there. You didn't say that, you bastard. <laughs> you There's parts of my day job that are to do yeah. with technology yeah. interactions, and I know exactly what you're talking about. And Yeah, uh, exactly. The assumption that you're as smart as they are. The assumption that it's obvious what has to happen is, is yeah, very frustrating. a bit patronizing, isn't it? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, technology is brilliant. I mean, it's got its downside. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a song on the album, I don't know, you won't have heard it yet because it's not been released yet, but it's called One Day. Uh, and it's based on the idea that in the future, if not already, there will be software that will allow some technological company to purchase an artist's entire recorded catalogue, all their recordings that they've ever, ever made, um, feed it through this machine that will examine, analyse uh, at granular level what actually makes it work, and then the press of the button spit out a new track without the artist having to lift a finger or sing anything. It's just using what already exists to create something new. Mm. Uh, and that wouldn't surprise me if that was actually happening. Well, I can tell you that it oh. is happening. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I, have, I have heard, <laughs> I have heard an AI uh, assimilation of the Beatles, and it is horrific because it's not a proper song. Because the thing, the oh. thing doesn't know what a song is, but it's this wave of noises that uh, is, is basically they fed all the Beatles music into a computer and they said, okay, now AI this into a song. And it's like, it's like trying to remember a dream. It's like a really well, nightmarish I love, scenario. I love the fact that it sounds terrible. I love yeah. the fact, well, it's basically disrupted the Beatles, hasn't it? It's yeah. a piece of machinery. But uh, they'll get there eventually. I'm pretty certain of it, you know? Well, it's like the sort of, Supposedly the positive side of deep fakes. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's a horrible idea. Uh, but then again, I'm just, I'm vintage. Well, it's, it's, it's odd the kind of things we, 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 we get used to, isn't it? True enough. Yeah. Um, well, look, Kevin, I think we've uh, taken up an awful lot of your time. Thank you so much for, for talking to us today. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure. Oh, thank, thank you. you. It was quite fun. And I hope we, hope we haven't uh, stressed you out about whether Paul Simon was in George oh, Harrison's video or not. Hang <laughs> on, while you're on, I'm going to look at it. Hang oh, okay. Just, just, hang on. Director's commentary. <laughs> when we was fab, there can't be many things called that, can we? No.
when we was uh, lyrics cause meaning cameo cameos hang on Ringo Starr Elton John Jeff Lynn is he that he's one of the violin players Neil Aspinall holding a copy of John Lennon's 1971 Imagine album I don't remember that he's, I did say we were stoned at the time didn't I <laughs> Um, I'll just get the video up and scroll through it. Okay, so I'm looking for... I'm looking for... This is Kevin Godley commenting on it. <laughs> I'm looking for a guy going by with a... With a fruit and veg cart. There's no, a bit where he walks away from the wall. There is Jeff Lynn. Yeah. Looks a bit like him, actually. <laughs> 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 I, know, I, I understand why. <laughs> no, it's an extra. Sure ah, uh, I think it's an extra. That's fantastic. We, we just we just edit that so that you just we just hear you saying it looks about a bit like him, and then we just oh, you bastards! You <laughs> cut that. You're going to keep the conspiracy theory alive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know and what he's actually wheeling is our Garfunkel. <laughs> well, you should always print the legend, you know. Yes. <laughs> uh, let me look at that again. How weird. Nah. Ah. Nah, I don't think so. I would have remembered if it was oh, <laughs> if it was fucking Paul Simon. You would. You would. <laughs> you would. Yeah. Um, well, look, Kevin Godley, thank you so much for talking to us today. Best of luck with muscle memory and everything else that uh, you have in your future. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Hopefully when all this is over, we'd be happy to buy you a cappuccino or a pint or whatever it is you're, you're tipple these days. Oh, I want a lot more than that. <laughs> <laughs> I, no want, I want Paul Simon to serve me. Okay, great. Thank you, okay, very Thank, thank you, you so much. Pleasure. So that was Kevin Godley there talking to us uh, a little earlier in the month and we're very, very... Glad that he took the time to talk to us. That was uh, that was a pretty good chat, wasn't it, Stephen? Uh, that was something else. I can't believe we had Kevin Godley on the program. It was it was very nice. He was very generous with his time, and it really is fascinating when you kind of look back on on you know his fifty plus years of all the things that he has managed to weave his way in and out of, and he's all very modest about it. He's not, uh, you know, it's it's as much a surprise to him as to anyone else. Yeah, if, if if I were Kevin Godley, I'd be telling everybody I was Kevin Godley. <laughs> yeah, if I, 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 you're exactly right. I'd be like, don't you know who I am? That'd be my 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 catchphrase. Yeah. But um, he was absolutely fantastic to talk to. We're very very grateful. And of course, once again, don't forget, folks. Kevin has a new album out in December, and unfathomably, it's his first ever proper solo album. It's called Muscle Memory, and he's already released some tracks on 
uh, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your music already, and they're they're well worth uh, uh, checking out. But the full album drops in uh, December. Muscle Memory from Kevin Godley, and uh, it's it's worth checking out. You've heard some bits and pieces from it, have you, Stephen? I have. I've been I've been listening to the singles. Yes, excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. So uh, so again, thanks to Kevin Godley and. Thanks to you all for listening. As per usual, we remain available in all the normal places. We're on Twitter at BeatlesPod. Uh, we have the Facebook group, which uh, Stephen uh, will let you in if you knock very politely on the door and say swordfish. And uh, we're also uh, uh, available online in other corners if you go looking for us as well. We appreciate all nice reviews that you leave wherever you download your podcasts. Um, but for now, my name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. Nothing is real is powered by Acast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.